This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Over the next couple of hours, Jason, we're going to bring everybody news of the week, insights from the magazine, and a lot more. A week of more woes in the retail sector. There was a lot going on, a lot of problems. Uh, And we also talked about U.S. virus cases, jumping the most in a few months. We talked about school reopenings, school athletic programs, not so fast. And I do feel like the world is gearing up to find out what's going to happen in the second half because second quarter earnings season just around the corner. Well, I think that's exactly right. And I want to pick up on something you just said. It feels like if there was a theme for the week, it was not so fast. You know, that <laughs> right. that basically this reopening that we've all been so focused on and looking forward to, certainly here in the tri-state area, where, as you say, we've been locked down at home for 17 mm-hmm. weeks. The rest of the country, it feels like, has dealt with this in a different way. And I think we're really seeing evidence of that. And that is playing out whether you look at the Ivy League canceling fall sports, whether you look at restaurants not opening for indoor dining the way that they had planned to, a lot of things now just slowing down a little bit. Yeah, exactly, right? And we felt this before, I feel like, over the last month or so, where we make some progress, but then we have to kind of slow down and really assess what the reality is of our situation. So a lot to talk about over the next couple of hours. And let's not forget, this week, it's our annual heist issue. It's still on newsstands. It's on the Bloomberg and at Bloomberg.com. And Jason, we know there's some really cool stories about stolen Super Bowl rings and also the most famous art heist in modern history. Great summer reads. And here on the show this week, we're going to have a conversation later on this hour with chef and restaurateur Daniel Ballou. Back with us, Carol, he talked about the early days of the pandemic. Now he's adapting to the new reality. Every day we try to really bring a little bit more improvement and also a little bit more hope to our businesses. Restaurants, Jason, we know have had a really tough time. So too has retail. And there were a lot of headlines on the retail world this week alone. We caught up with Alan Ellinger. He is co-founder, senior managing partner of the investment bank MMG Advisors. He has been consulting on deals, looking at some of those distressed assets. So a great conversation with him. A lot of distress also at Facebook of a different kind, Carol, dealing with issues of social justice and a massive boycott. We caught up with Amber Atherton. She's the CEO of Zyper. She had some pretty strong words to say about where Facebook is. But first, imagine taking five antibody tests just to get results you could believe in. That's what Bloomberg's senior writer, Stephanie Baker, did. Let's start with that interview. A couple months ago, I took uh, four antibody tests, those finger prick uh, antibody tests that were on the market at the time. that Many people had questioned their reliability, um, and I got conflicting results. I got two positives and two negatives and sort of gave up, even though I had cross-checked them with various other doctors and nurses who had tested positive for COVID. So I was left a bit confused about my status. When some of the newer tests came out that are based on an intravenous blood draw, they appear to be more accurate and more sensitive. Uh, so I finally got around to taking one of these tests, the Abbott test, which is, does have some pretty good data behind it, and I was indeed positive. And I was somewhat relieved that I figured I have three positives versus two negatives, and one of the positives seems to be more reliable and has some pretty hard science behind it. Having studied this, Stephanie, I have to ask you, why is this so hard? 
I, I agree. I, it shouldn't be this hard. And I think it's hard because we are still learning so much about this virus. Um, you know, I think some of the tests we're trying to figure out what is the best way to go about, um, you know, finding the most effective antibodies. You know, is it against the spike protein or is it against the nucleocapsid, which is another kind of antibody that the COVID-19 generates? Um, and I think there was a lot of time wasted on these finger prick tests, which some of them can be good and reliable, but they're just not as sensitive as the intravenous blood draw. The blood draw is a hard thing to roll out on a mass scale. Uh, it's more expensive. It's more time-consuming. Um, you know, but the data seems to indicate that this is the better approach. We still don't know what it means to have antibodies, and I think that's the biggest problem. There's indications that it, it does provide some protection. We don't know how long that lasts, um, and I think that's the real question mark over these tests. What, is it, what, is, what does it really mean to be positive? That's such a good point, because I think, Stephanie, when we first started talking about the antibody test, we were like, okay, this is the holy grail. We're going to find out if you had it, and then you're okay, and then you've got some immunity, and you can go back out into the world. And now we're realizing it's not so easy. And I do wonder, how did it kind of change your psyche in terms of, okay, you know, or you think you know, right, because you've done five tests, and the majority are saying one thing. I mean, how did, has it impacted your world in terms of how you go back and, and reenter? I think it has made me more relaxed about the risk of contracting it, for sure. Um, you know, I'm, I'm still being cautious because I think that's the responsible thing to do. Um, but I, I do look at my risks of, say, contracting it by going into a store or um, even a restaurant as less than it would have been otherwise. But I think I, think I do have a responsibility to be careful because we just don't have those long-term studies showing what it means. We don't know how long it lasts. I, I, you know, my antibodies might fade. We don't know. Mm. And until those studies are done, I, I need to be the sort of responsible pandemic citizen and, and be careful and cautious around social distancing. And that's Bloomberg's Stephanie Baker, Carol. And usually she's literally chasing after financial criminals. In this case, she was trying to chase down a good result for a test. Yeah, and what's interesting is her reporting, I love this story, because she reminds us that these antibody tests, which we thought were going to be the holy grail and a game changer, well, they are imperfect, and they're not as reliable in terms of what it means to have had the virus, to have antibodies, and what does it mean as you kind of reenter the world. So love her reporting and her firsthand experiences. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, retail, no stranger to the effects of the pandemic. This, Jason, we know is an industry that has been hit so hard. We're going to talk with Alan Ellinger, MMG co-founder. They are working in the retail industry, taking a look at those distressed assets. So his perspective in just a moment. He's been in the business a long time. He's seen a lot of cycles. This one is different. And this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. And today we're bringing you some of the most important and informative conversations we had on our daily Bloomberg Business Week radio show across the week, Carol. And Jason, you know, we like to remind everybody that we're doing these interviews as news is happening and crossing the Bloomberg terminal kind of fast and furiously. And that was true for the retail industry. Brooks Brothers and Sur La Tabla filing bankruptcy, Bed Bath & Beyond announcing plans to cut about 20% of its stores. So it's been very tough on the retail front just this week alone. Alan Ellinger is someone who has worked within the retail industry for some 40 years. He is co-founder, senior managing partner of the investment bank MMG Advisor. And he says this time is unlike any other. 
as a firm, we've been working remotely. Um, our office closed on uh, March 12th. Um, and other than our office manager, nobody's been back since. Um, but we've managed to be in touch uh, with every one of our clients. Um, um, right now, we're handling three bankruptcies, as a matter of fact. We're in the midst of three bankruptcies. So our world continues, but just continues remotely. Uh, and, and quite busy, I might add. Yeah, and so so busy it sounds like on sort of bankruptcy restructuring side, but presumably, and you know, this is what I hear, and I'm sure Carol hears from investors that we know. I mean, these are the times when maybe there are some values to be had from a partnering up perspective, from an acquisition perspective. What are you seeing, or Absolutely. is it too early to tell? What well, it's a very it's a really good question. What we're seeing and what we're experiencing are an, an enormous amount of inbound phone calls from opportunistic buyers. Yeah. Um, people who know that there's going to be bargains out there, um, and they're just, you know, they've got a lot of dry powder. These are both, these are both uh, strategics as well as private equity um, who are sitting on, they're sitting on those sidelines right now just waiting to pounce on the right opportunities. I just spoke to a, to a commercial banker this morning um, and, and the word that they used was the other shoe hasn't dropped yet. Hmm. What we're seeing, while there are a lot of bankruptcies in process at the moment, um, there are a lot of companies who really haven't um, acknowledged the fact that they're going to have to make some pretty hard decisions in the next couple of months. Uh, the, the PPP money has, has enabled companies to last a little longer. Um, you know, people wanted to see, company owners wanted to see what would happen when retail reopened. And what the if there would be a positive impact on their business or not, but you know we're living through a period of time at the moment where, for the first time ever, both the supply side and the demand side have been impacted simultaneously. We've never seen anything like that before. Uh, on top of which, on top of which, when this happened, it happened suddenly. You know, all of a sudden doors were locked and people could not shop in stores, and consequently cash flow just dried up. We've never experienced that. You know, in the past, when, when, when companies um, are skating, I use the word, are skating on thin ice, um, and they, they're considering a bankruptcy, you plan it. You plan it for, for sometimes weeks, sometimes months in advance, and you're able to come up with a, with a, with a plan of volume and, um, because you kind of know what your, what your prior year sales were in the similar dates, and you could come up with a, with a, with a financial plan. All that's falling apart because there's been, there's been no traffic. So, um, you know, Models filed for Chapter 11 on March, I think it was March 11th. And right. They couldn't, they, they, they couldn't even run a going out of business sale because the stores were locked. And they're just now reopening. So we've, we've, never, we've never experienced anything like this. We've also never experienced the volume of bankruptcies that we're, that we're living through right now. And i got to tell you, I think it's just beginning. You know, um, we're going to see a lot more bankruptcies this time during the balance of this year, maybe into early next year. Um, I, but I, I will also tell you that you know, we are overstored as a country. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we're over invent We're also over inventoried as a country. So the fact that um, retail organizations, as an example, are using—I'm using the term—the cover of COVID. You know, they're, mm -hmm. they're they're using they're using this period of time to clean up their balance sheets um, to get out of unproductive leases. You look at like companies like J.C. Penney or um, who have mall stores across America, and you know a lot of those stores are unproductive. They're in C and D malls, 
So, you know, they don't, those are not money-making stores. This gives them an opportunity to, to clean up their balance sheet, get, a, get out of unproductive leases. And because it's under the, under the cover of, of, of COVID, they won't have the stigma. Once they come out of it, they're able to rebuild their business. It's kind of like pruning a tree. You know, when you prune <laughs> yeah. a tree you, 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 to make it healthier, that's exactly what's happening with those retail organizations who have the ability to get into bankruptcy and have the financing then to come out of it with a successful plan. So what are the longer-term implications of all of this on, on this industry? Well, there are a couple of things. One is um, we've all been living at home and have had a greater respect now for D2C companies, those, those companies that we can yeah. buy parked online. So we're going to see a lot of growth in D2C, continuing growth in D2C. I believe that we're also going to see a number of heritage companies, companies that have been around for a long time, who have been unsuccessful in building their own D2C companies, buying or, or attempting to buy D2C companies now that they can see the impact. And, and there'll be some values out there. That, um, so we'll see consolidation in, in that area. Um, what we're also going to see is a great deal of promotion coming up over the next couple of months um, as, as companies try to clear their inventories. There's right. an, an enormous amount of inventory in the stores, on the water. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it, it, it's just it, it's built up over a period of time. That inventory has to be moved. Right. It has to be liquefied into cash. Now, there, there are some companies who are packing and holding their goods. Right. Meaning, if, if it's not highly, if it's not high fashion, they're going to just put it away and save those goods till next year. So, Alan, what does the second half look like? Well, it's going to be highly promotional. Um, I think you know the customer will benefit from the uncertainty of inventory type in the marketplace right now. Um, we're going to see a lot more bankruptcies, um, and I, I will, you'll start to see deals happening. That's Alan Ellinger, co-founder and senior managing partner of the investment bank MMG Advisors. And he says, you know, Jason, a lot more bankruptcies in retail to come. He does think JCPenney's and Macy's will make it through. But, you know, he talks about something we've heard from so many other folks. We're an overstored country. Well, and we heard that throughout the week. And certainly one of the threads we were pulling on that we mm -hmm. will continue to pull on is this over-retailed world, changing consumer habits in many ways, what effect that may have. Folks are still shopping for the moment, I think, yeah. to the surprise of many. Those second quarter earnings results, those are going to give us a window into what people were spending and where they were spending it. But the outlook, it isn't great. So definitely an area to keep an eye on because that consumer economy, we know it makes everything run. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, Facebook under pressure again. Why brands and consumers are losing trust in the social media giant. Our conversation with Zyper CEO Amber Atherton when we return. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. We're bringing some of the most important and informative conversations we had on our daily radio show throughout the week. Jason, it was week 17, a lot of stuff going on, even though it was coming after a long holiday weekend. And in the news this week was Facebook. Their chief operating officer, Sheryl Sandberg, and CEO Mark Zuckerberg, they met up with civil rights organizations. They are critical of the company for not taking seriously their demands to better police its service from hate speech and misinformation. All of this has led to some big name companies, Starbucks and Pepsi among them, boycotting the social network. 
Well, and that's what it comes down to, right? This isn't just a social justice mm-hmm. issue. This is an economic issue now. We went to one of our trusted voices on all things social media. That is Zyper CEO Amber Atherton. She was back with us to help us break it all down. They ultimately failed to appease the organizers of the ad, ad boycott. So, I mean, what we're seeing from brands is and, and consumers who are leaving the platform is that you know, 46% of people who are no longer on Facebook are off the platform because they simply do not trust it with their mm. personal info. And they do not agree with how the company conducts business. So I think what we're seeing from advertisers is, you know, they want to be where their consumers are. And this is more about advertisers' stance on hate speech and not wanting to support that. Um, however, this is temporary. So um, it's going to be interesting to see if brands in this temporary Uh, boycott are able to find new channels for growth. And if that's the case, then I think it's going to be interesting to see where uh, Facebook is left. Well, and and Amber, it it feels like such a catalytic moment to some extent for a lot of brands, because given the social unrest that's out there, it feels like consumers are demanding more of brands, demanding more transparency demanding answers, demanding them to some extent to, to take a stand. Do you agree with that? I mean, do you see sort of a different, do you see and hear and sort of feel a different tone around brands right now? Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, I can tell you at Zyper, our customers who are looking to build community with their customers, um, at least 10 of our customers have joined this Facebook ad boycott. Um, wow. you know, that's Duncan, Frito-Lay. Uh, you know, these are big companies who want to support what their consumers' views are, which is you know, not to fund hate speech. So I think that this is an exciting time for brands to really challenge themselves to innovate on new ways to collaborate with their consumers. And we know that this new generation of Gen Z, you know, they, 36% of Gen Z consumers would like to collaborate with the brands that they love. So I think this all plays into this theme that we've been talking about since January, which is the decentralization of Facebook and how, you know, the leading D2C brands who are really on the forefront of innovation are democratizing how they build brands. And it's, it's no longer the kind of status quo of traditional Facebook advertising. And so, Amber, when you say they want to collaborate, they want to engage, like, what does that look like? Give us an example there. Yeah, I think it's probably worth referencing that, you know, uh, this month we signed a big deal with General Mills where we'll be helping a lot of their brands across EMEA to be identifying their everyday consumers. Uh, so these are genuine fans of the brand that don't have a lot of interaction directly with the brand. And we're able to bring them into this closed chat-based environment to collaborate with their consumers on product innovation, kind of like a focus group 2.0, and, and really just prove that customers who become part of a community with a brand, they are 10 times more likely to repeat rates than somebody who was acquired through a Facebook ad. So I think there's some really wow. compelling evidence that if you invest where your customers are and invest in spending time building a relationship in a community setting, then that does pay off in terms of LTV. And I think what we're seeing more brands interested in how can they increase LTV, which will ultimately allow them to spend more on acquisition um, than they are focused on getting cheap acquisition. Because let's face it, Facebook has become more expensive to acquire customers. Well, this is what I wanted to ask you, Amber, because I do feel like a lot of brands still need Facebook. And even though they may be doing a temporary boycott, as you said, let's see if it will be temporary. Because I do wonder if brands kind of ultimately still need that social media platform of 
Facebook, but as there are more alternatives, might people turn away? And it's just a case of they're just, you know, kind of waiting it out until there are other alternatives to, you know, successfully um, market on social media. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think this is, I mean, we can't deny the fact that, you know, in the first quarter, uh, there was a gain of around 100 million monthly active users on Facebook. So, you know, 2.6 billion, a yeah. record high. So, you know, that is, that is a, a huge reach that brands want to play with. But I think this is more about the values of the platform. And the fact is, TikTok is rising. You know, more yeah. customers are saying to us than ever that they can acquire users more cheaply and more effectively through TikTok. And that's Cypress CEO Amber Atherton, really one of our trusted voices when it comes to Silicon Valley and social media, Carol, because Facebook and all of social media find themselves in the midst of all of these crises that we're facing, whether it be the pandemic, whether it be social justice. And also, by the way, we've got a huge election coming up. Exactly. And people are concerned also about that kind of content, right, on the platform. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, chef and restaurateur Danielle Boulou, how he's adapting like many in his industry and finding his way back. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. And today we're bringing you some of the most important, we hope, informative conversations that Carol and I had on our daily Bloomberg Business Week radio show throughout the week and loved catching up with this famous chef. I have to say, he is just so lovely. We caught up with him initially in early April. It's just Jason as he was shutting down his restaurants. He, like many, are pivoting in the industry, finding their way back. And just this week, he was offering up Danielle Boulou Kitchen in a terrace setting in front of his famed restaurant bearing his own name, Danielle, of course. Uh, and we actually caught up with him on the night he was introducing it. We are putting a sidewalk cafe at Restaurant Danielle, which uh, Restaurant Danielle is 28 years old, 27. When he was on 76th Street, he used to have a sidewalk cafe. When I moved it to 65th, I never really put a sidewalk cafe because we had enough room within inside and and uh, we are doing, um, because I've started the business of uh, delivery and to go, Daniel Bully Kitchen. So we are serving the menu of Daniel Bully Kitchen on the terrace of Daniel. So more casual and uh, more approachable, but fun and, 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 and really uh, it's an opportunity because I think we have a beautiful uh, facade. We have a beautiful space. Mm-hmm. And that's the only place we can really serve our guests. And we felt that it would be good to bring more staff and to bring right. m- new uh, to bring guests back. I have to uh, imagine, Danielle, that your clientele, many of whom are listeners, uh, so well known across uh, Manhattan and, and the world, they must have been clamoring for this, right? I mean, have you been getting a lot of calls of people saying, I, I want to come back in some <laughs> form or fashion? Come cook for me. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. So we do that. We have the come cook for me by by sending them meal home, of course, and we also do package for uh, destination, uh, the Hamptons or other places, people drive miles from the tri-state to come and pick up a box with all kind of meals prepared for them to take home. But, I mean, having them at the restaurant and being able to, again, welcome, serve them, pamper them, and offer them something we feel, uh, it, it makes us very happy, and I think it will make them very happy, our guests, yes. 
Well, you know, it's interesting, Danielle, like we have been talking to a lot of folks, especially within your industry, that you've got to figure out how to pivot here, right? Because it's not like you can flip a switch and go back to the way it no. was pre-COVID. No. And so it sounds like that's what you guys are, are doing. Yeah, very much. And we also up on the west side. I have a restaurant mm -hmm. at 64 and Broadway, Bar Boulou and Epicerie Boulou opened yesterday or this morning. Actually, this morning we opened Epicerie Boulou. So it's our retail store where it's open all day from breakfast to early evening. And people can have salads and sandwiches and things who are uh, all home-baked and homemade. And then we, uh, Barboulou has a huge terrace on 64 and Broadway. So that's very, very convenient as well. And uh, we took Café Boulou up in the Berkshire and we did a pop-up there in a wonderful Relais Chateau called the Blantyre. So it, it really, uh, we find, I mean, it's all this opportunity to try to bring back staff. I mean, we were more than 750 staff, and we went down to seven people, <sighs> and now we are back up to 120 total around uh, the, the different businesses we have reopened, and we are pushing up and bringing more people. So. Wow, that's and, that's big moves, yeah. And in terms of capacity, Danielle, um, what is the? I mean, what can you do at, at at what you're opening tonight versus what you would be able to do inside? <laughs> I think I think the terrace is only I would say for right now. It's and and because you know if it if it's beautiful weather, we might be able to extend more tables. Right. But if it's uh, a little bit drizzly like tonight we want to stay under the canopy and we have a limitation of about 35 to 40 seats but that's pretty good and then yeah. if it's, mm. it's nice weather we might be able to double that size but that's nothing compared to the size on the inside where normally we have private dining rooms we have the bar and lounge we have the dining room which could almost bring uh, 180 uh, seats or more uh, so it's a very different business model, yeah. and it's definitely not um, right. a profitable model. But it's very it it it, it motivates us so much to do something. Well, with the whole concept of outdoor dining, I'm sure you knew about it before, but you've probably learned more than you ever thought you would about outdoor dining, <laughs> given that that's how we're all uh, eating out uh, these days. Mm -hmm. How do you view it? What have you learned about it in terms of what you can and can't do and, and maybe what the future is, given that we're going to be in this for some time? Of course. I know. And, and, and thanks God, I mean, we're in it in the summer right now. Right. And the fall should be mellow until at least November. Uh, but the, um, the mayor of New York has really opened up, and I think many cities all over the country have open up the opportunity for restaurateurs to be able to put table outside in places who have never been authorized before. And they are really helpful, um, meaningful, uh, I mean, mindful of, uh, of course, the security for the guests, but also um, really up, uh, give the chance for the restaurateur to have a meaningful business outdoor for the time being, for the time being, let's say. And, uh, of course, the fine dining restaurant is more complicated, but not too many restaurants as outdoor terrace or cafe. Uh, the small bistro, we have like four or five tables outside. I've seen them taking half a block and going around the block with tables. So it, it seems like they have more tables outside than inside now. Right. But, <laughs> but it's good. Thank yeah. God. 
Yeah, exactly. And that there is that opportunity to do it. You know, um, we were talking with our Kate Crater, who covers, um, I think, as you of know, uh, we love we love talking with Kate. And, and you know, we were wondering, you know, you were going, I thought, to talk to Lincoln Center about doing maybe big screens for events like the U.S. Open so that maybe diners yes. could watch from Barbalu. Are, are, are you doing that? Are you moving ahead with that? Well, uh, I am still convinced that we can do something, and I am looking at sponsor. It's, it's all about trying to find sponsoring yeah. to be able to create something for the moment, a uh, little bit of a spontaneous thing and for a short leave, but at least we can do things to entertain guests. But I think um, it is important that uh, because the Open is happening, uh, that we are able to show it all over town, and it's, uh, it, it will be uh, fantastic. I mean, I uh, would love to be able to show it at Danielle if needed, but at Lincoln Center, there is the huge esplanade where right. I'm sure people don't have to crowd, and they have the entire wall of the buildings where they could project the games and mm. put some speakers. So I hope they will be, you know, interested to do that, of course. So, Danielle, you know, the last time we talked to you, um, you know, the, the pandemic was very much on in, in New York City. Unfortunately, yes. it was a very different time. Um, but obviously not much, not too much has changed, although, you know, little baby steps forward that we're taking in terms of mm-hmm. outdoor dining. I do wonder for you, because at the time you were rightly concerned, and I'm sure you remain concerned about the future of your business and maybe more importantly, the future of fine dining uh, all yeah. across the country. Where do we stand now? What do you think about now when it comes to the future of fine dining? Well, uh, for a while, it will have to be slightly recaliber. I mean, slightly or strongly recaliber uh, in in this um, ambition of offering, I would say, in his size. Uh, you know, uh, we fine dining, when we think of fine dining, that means we're going to reopen our restaurant inside and um, in its price, maybe, maybe more option to be able to have choice of not having to go for a tasting menu only, mm. but maybe some sampler option. Uh, maybe some uh, hours of operation will might be shrunk down a little bit uh, because of uh, the cost of doing business. And so, you know, less, less days of operation will mean more control in in the cost of doing business and slowly get back to where it belongs because I think fine dining will not go away. But I'm hoping that Restaurant Daniel, I can do a pop-up for the the months to come Mm. where uh, I create something very casual, very disrupting and very different. And uh, I'm I'm basically covering the skin of fine dining and putting a a skin of (laughs) a casual place. That's chef and restaurateur Danielle Boulou. Uh, check out our full conversation. It's in our extra podcast, Jason. But, you know, man, just to hear him talk about how many workers they had, how many they had to let go, how many they've been able to bring back. I mean, it has been so tough for anyone in this industry. Well, and look, this is a guy owing to the success of his signature restaurant in New mm-hmm. York City, but also a lot of the projects he has in other parts of New York City and beyond. 
people are looking to him for leadership, and I think he feels a real responsibility to other chefs coming up behind him and his peers to really make a difference and really chart a course to fine dining in the future. Yeah, and bottom line, he says, future fine dining, you asked him about that. More options when it comes to pricing, menus, and hours of operation. So, yeah, things are going to change. They are. Well, that wraps up the first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Plenty coming up in our next hour, including a conversation with Trinity College President Joanne Berger-Sweeney, how her school is planning to reopen in the fall, what it's doing also when it comes to diversity and inclusion. Right. We're talking about a woman. She is the first woman and the first African-American to run that college. It's a prestigious Mm -hmm. school there in Hartford, Connecticut. So she is living all of these crises at once. Plus, the return of Broadway, well, it's going to be delayed once again. We caught up with Broadway League President Charlotte St. Martin. Yep, we're all going to have to be patient just a little bit longer. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Hello, I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. Plenty ahead for you in this hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week, including the relationship between Washington and Silicon Valley continues to be fraught, maybe only getting more fraught. We have a bit of a theme developing here in the second hour because we're going to talk now about an MIT study that looks at racism and diversity through the lens of economic opportunity. It's a new report from MIT that finds black male college grads have suffered the most disconcerting losses. Bloomberg Business Week economics editor Peter Coy and Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber broke it down. It's a study called The Faltering Escalator of Urban Opportunity. It's by David Autor, a prominent economist at MIT, who I really love. He does such excellent work. This is part of a task force that he co-chairs called the Task Force on the Work of the Future. So uh, the the conventional wisdom is that cities are good places for opportunity because there are things, there are kinds of jobs that are available in cities that simply aren't available in suburbs or rural areas. And for a long while, that was true. If you moved to the city, you were likely to get a better job, earn more money, and be on an escalator towards higher pay. but what he's found is that is going back as far as like 1980, that started to become less true, and it's become less and less true as time has gone by. And uh, so there's more of a barbell now. There are some great jobs for upper-income people, and there are some plentiful jobs for people at the bottom, uh, whether they are security guards or food preparation types, uh, you know, service jobs like that. But the kind of the middle-paying jobs, there are far fewer of them than there were in past decades. Well, also with us is Business Week editor Joel Weber joining us from Massachusetts. So, Joel, put this story in context. I mean, we love a good Peter Coy story. I know you're never one to turn it down either. But frame this for us in, in the sort of broader uh, theme of the magazine and what you're trying to do. Um, funny enough, it relates to uh, a, a conversation Peter and I were actually just having kind of earlier in the day, and I think it helps inform some of um, coverage that you'll probably continue to be seeing from us because, you know, cities have really been this um, this engine of economic activity, and that is has been true for, you know, us being sort of in New York City proper yeah. most of the time and in the before times. Um, but if you think about it writ large, especially for the American economy, that has been the story of um, sort of the 
the economic engine of America has been sort of like the 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 movement towards cities, the economic activity that they survive that they provide. And now that the pandemic, um, as Peter kind of said, it, it actually is almost sort of like ex accelerated some trends. And some of those were pre-existing trends and others were were things that were sort of unexpected. Um, and I think it puts the the burden on cities in a, in a way that um, it doesn't for a lot of other economic models. And I think that that is going to be um, just an ongoing conversation of like, you know, you take New York City, for instance, as Peter and I were talking about earlier, it was like, so what does this mean for the MTA, right? Like mm -hmm. MTA, all, all of these yeah. things that the city, the city needs people in order to, to fuel the city itself. And the moment that you sort of remove the people from that equation, it starts to actually be, become somewhat of a downward spiral. So what does that mean, Peter? I mean, like, play this out for us, uh, you know, based on the folks you talk to and, and your own research and, and expertise. I mean, we're talking about, as Joel just mentioned, basic infrastructure. I mean, just sort of the way that cities live and breathe and grow and, uh, and operate. Yeah. Well, New York City is unique in the United States in its density, particularly Manhattan. Uh, it's not the norm for U.S. cities. You hear a lot of people talking about edge cities, which yeah. are far less dense and in some ways more sustainable. problem with, like, New York is that the subway needs a lot of riders to, you know, to pay its budget. You take away all the riders and you still run the trains and you're running massive deficits. That's just unsustainable. So uh, you can't get away with less density in New York. But I just want to quickly go back to the topic of male um, college grads, which uh, – Carol mentioned in her intro is that, that that's a special problem because in general the middle paying jobs were held by people maybe without uh, college degrees uh, and so it was the people without college degrees in general who suffered the most from this hollowing out but for black male college grads they have been dragged down as well and uh, that was one of the big surprises for Autor in his research, that they, uh, their share of middle-paying jobs went down and their share of low-paying jobs went up from 1980 to 2015. Mm. So that's compounding all the other problems we've been talking about. And that's Bloomberg Business Week economics editor Peter Coy and Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber joining us. This study, I think, Carol, really stopped us short. Well, what's interesting is when you think about economics, you know, conventional wisdom is that cities provide so much opportunities for everyone, right, that you won't get in suburbs or out in the country. And yet what the MIT researchers found that that's not really the case, right, that cities are just not very desirable to workers in middle paying occupations. And that's especially the case for black male college grads. So this study really uh, stood out for me this week. And if you want to hear a little bit more about what that study is about and Peter's reporting, uh, check it out online at Bloomberg.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Coming up, author of The Code, Silicon Valley and the Remaking of America. She's back with us. University of Washington professor Margaret O'Mara talking to us about racism and diversity or a lack thereof in Silicon Valley. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. 
We're bringing you some of the most important and informative conversations. We had a lot this week uh, happening on our daily radio show. And we'd like to remind everybody, Jason, right, there was so much news going on around us when it came to the economic outlook, what's going on with companies, and, of course, what's going on with the virus. But one of those topics that stayed front and center as well is concerns about racism throughout the country. Absolutely. And nowhere is it feeling more important and maybe more surprising than Silicon Valley. It's a bastion. We think of it as Mm -hmm. liberalism and progressive thinking. And yet we caught up with Margaret O'Mara back with us. She's the author of a really great book called The Code, Silicon Valley and the Remaking of America. It's out in paperback now. And she shared with us her thoughts on the history and the current state of the valley. Silicon Valley, and particularly its biggest companies, and, and I, you know, obviously three three that are based in, in the valley and two that are based in my town of Seattle, um, are facing kind of a number of stressors um, by the, created by this moment. Look, they're they're all doing great. Um, the the economy, you know, the the COVID economy has has created a greater need for for what they provide. So the so earnings are, are you know some things are down, but they're doing pretty well all considered. But they've got, you know, I think there are problems now both as employers. Um, there's been a conversation about the lack of diversity at the top of Silicon Valley, particularly in engineering teams. It's been going on for a long time. And look, the needle has not moved very much. There's still not enough. There's not enough diversity in the C-suite, not to mention in these key roles. And I think there's the other bigger problem of, what you know, how their products, the platforms are feeding into um, polarization, the questions around hate speech and free speech, the questions of where these platforms, you know, what role are they playing in this moment and where can they help make positive change? All right. So let's split those into two and start with the first one, which is the employee Mm -hmm. base and this relationship and and lack of diversity because, you know, Silicon Valley has long held its itself up as you know this is a meritocracy and Mm -hmm. so anyone who's qualified should be able to be successful what has hampered that from actually happening or is the whole idea of it being a meritocracy um false well it you know i think the the idea of the meritocracy goes back deep and i think what it reflects is at the very beginning and i'm talking about the 50s and 60s when electronics was starting to cluster in the Bay Area and in the in the Valley in particular. These were these were guys, and they were all guys, and they were all white guys because they were engineers. And it was the fifties, so let's keep it keep that in mind. But they were from pretty modest middle class backgrounds. They didn't have family connections. They didn't have money. Um, a, a number of them did very well for themselves. But when you think about these iconic founders, people like Bill Hewlett and Dave Packard and Bob Noyce and Gordon Moore, you know, HP, Intel. They all came from small town backgrounds. Didn't have they? You know, they didn't have family connections or money. And so, there, it is true that this has been a pathway for upward mobility. But that is not true now. And funnily enough, one of the things that makes the valley so successful is the networks between mm-hmm. you know across people, people who work together, people who fund someone that they know, drawing on you know the, these these networks of connection have been absolutely critical in enabling the industry to generate one generation of company after another. But it also closes you out to other possibilities to think about, well, what kind of someone from a different engineering program? Or what the heck, let's look at someone who doesn't look at all like, doesn't have a background at all, at all like the other people we funded, but let's take a risk. 
you know, venture investing is a really risky business, right? <laughs> there are only a few, a small number of your investments that make all your money. And so I think that there's sort of a conservatism in, in choosing, trying to sort of hedge your bets as much as you can by choosing people who are kind of known quantities. And often that means someone who knows someone you know. And, right. and that, I think, is why the diversity problem is so hard to untangle. So, Margaret, what, what will it take for Silicon Valley to be more inclusive? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I think it's going to take sort of it's a similar question that's posed uh, all of corporate America. But I think Silicon Valley has a particular pressure on it because these are companies that have presented themselves as different kinds of corporations, um, you know, not, not, not evil. <laughs> and, um, and, have, and, and, and definitely the talent that they are able to recruit and retain is their key ingredient, their key competitive advantage. And so I think presenting really, I think looking seriously and taking diversity more seriously, um, and that is going to involve, I think, a real shift in the way that you recruit and retain people, um, thinking about uh, sort of casting a broader net and um, building a pipeline for people who are coming into companies large and small. Um, and then I think there's also sort of recognizing the great advantages that come from having a diverse team in the room that's developing products, that's marketing products, that's thinking about um, different markets. Uh, there are whole global markets that Silicon Valley companies have not tapped into, in part because we've been really, really good at building products certainly in the last 20 years or so that um, are really often for upper middle class people in the United States. Um, it's like them. And, you know, think about all these other companies that lie out there when you're thinking more broadly. And so, Margaret, you know, this was a week where Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg had a meeting that, by all accounts, didn't go great with, with a lot of uh, activists when it comes to social justice. You know, a lot of criticisms being leveled there. At Facebook and from an economic perspective, boycotts uh, underway from really big advertisers, brand name companies that have relied on Facebook as a means to advertise to literally billions of people. What's the next step of that? And what do you make of this moment for Facebook and some of the other social media companies in terms of where they go next, specifically around answering questions of social justice? Yeah. Well, I think for the ad-driven companies, Facebook and Google in particular, that, you know, those sort of boycotts, that's hitting them right in their wallet, right? It's hitting them right at the, at the core. That's Margaret O'Mara, University of Washington professor of history and author of The Code, Silicon Valley and the Remaking of America. That book now out in paperback. We talked to her a year ago when it came out uh, for the first time in hardcover. What's interesting, Jason, her conversation reminded me of that recent story on the Bloomberg about what it's like to be a black CEO in Silicon Valley. And one takeaway of that story talked about how you needed to have a lot of humiliation to do business if you're a black CEO in Silicon Valley. So I thought, you know, it was great to get her perspective on what's going on. Yeah, I totally agree. I think this is an area that maybe we've overlooked because of Mm -hmm. Silicon Valley's reputation. But when you pair this with what Amber Atherton was saying earlier about the struggles of Facebook and social media, Silicon Valley is very, very complicated. You're listening to Bloomberg this week. Coming up, we're going to continue our conversations on systemic racism, diversity, and some of the challenges across the nation's biggest and most important institutions. Trinity College President Joanne Berger Sweeney with us. She says it's a time of hope, but also a time of change. It's a great conversation. This is Bloomberg. 
This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Today we're bringing you some of the most important and we hope informative conversations we've had recently on our daily Bloomberg Business Week radio show. And Jason, one of those conversations was with Joanne Berger Sweeney. She is in her sixth year as president of Trinity College. You know, what's interesting is she was at um, Tufts University and there she created the Center for Race and Democracy. Uh, and what's interesting is I feel like diversity and inclusion, well, I don't feel like it truly has been a common thread of her academic and professional career. And she's now thinking about that big time as head of Trinity. We are planning for a robust experience for our students, taking into consideration health and safety as a priority. Our students will be meeting regularly and have safe interactions with their professors, we think with coaches and staff. We are also ready to pivot if we need to again to have remote learning. So we are preparing to engage our students in new and interesting ways, even if that needs to be remote. Um, We're planning to support them because they need help in figuring out how to navigate this new normal. And then, you know, on a practical basis, of course we are planning to have face coverings, physical distancing, reminders of hand washing, self-monitoring of symptoms, and mandatory public health education for when they come back to campus. But you're going to be on campus. It is certainly our plan to be on campus. Um, We were very fortunate to determine that we had 1,700 individual beds behind doors. Now, sometimes it's off of a suite, but we had 1,700 um, individual bed spaces here at Trinity, and generally we have 2,000 students. So that will allow our students to come back and um, also have um, private or individual rooms. And we thought with those circumstances and with the guidance that we've been provided by the state of Connecticut that we are planning for a reopening. You know, recognizing, of course, that if conditions are such that we cannot open, um, you know, we'll have to then pivot to remote learning. And so what are you hearing from students, especially incoming students, sort of new, the, the, the first-year students, I would imagine? I, I have to think they're the most both apprehensive but also maybe the most eager at, at the same time. Uh, Joanne, so what are the conversations like there with them and their parents? Right. It's, it's amazing how eager they are to come to college. Um, we had one of our largest classes, more than 600 students who accepted Trinity College, which we thought was surprising given the pandemic. Mm-hmm. But I think that people really want to come back. We did a survey of students. And even before we had given them, you know, what health and safety measures were going to look like, it's just, what's your likelihood of coming back? And 85% of our students and parents said they were either very likely or likely to come back. And then there was another, um, you know, almost 10% that said, well, we're waiting to see 
you know, what health and safety measures you have. So people want to come back. Um, and I'll share with you that I'm the parent of a college-age student. He wants to go back, and I want him to go back. Yeah. <laughs> we are all ready, all so, ready so, for our students to so go back, aren't we? <laughs> Joanne, as you know, Jason has two teenagers, um, and also a little one, but two teenagers. He and I both have um, kids who are going to be seniors in high school, and i got to tell you, I cannot – I love my daughter. I cannot wait for her to yeah. kind of be back within school, and she misses it a lot. So I, we totally get it. <laughs> yeah, we absolutely so get I, it. You know, when I talk to parents, they all get it, and yes. they laugh when I say, oh, no, 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 everybody wants. Uh, yeah, no, no, you're right there with back. them, for sure. All right, so you're the first black and first female president of Trinity College. I'm sure you are getting questions like this all the time. What do we do to make this more than a moment? I think already it is more than a moment. And somehow people are listening to each other in a different manner. And that's Trinity College President Joanne Berger-Sweeney. I love that conversation because she really does sit at the nexus of so many of the most important social issues that we're facing. One of which, Carol, is getting kids back to school, but also big institutions dealing with some of the most important issues of our time. You can hear that whole conversation on our podcast feed. It's a great conversation. And it came, Jason, in a week where we kept getting a lot of headlines from colleges and universities, including one from the Ivy League, right, canceling sports competition for the upcoming semester because of health and safety concerns about the coronavirus pandemic. So a lot going on, certainly, in that world. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, Broadway dark for the rest of the year. We're going to check in with Broadway League President Charlotte St. Martin. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Well, today we're bringing some of the most important, we hope, informative conversations we've had recently on our daily Bloomberg Business Week radio show, Carol. That's true. And a recent conversation had to do with New York City's famed Broadway. It's still dark, Jason, we know, because of the pandemic. Theaters staying closed for the rest of the year at least. But uh, we caught up once again with the president of the Broadway League, Charlotte St. Martin, to find out what the outlook is. We either hire or are responsible for 97,000 jobs. Mm. That's the local restaurants. That's the retail stores in the area. That's uh, the hotels. It's the museums and the vicinity, the parking garages. And they don't go back to work until Broadway goes back to work. So... Uh, it's not just Broadway that's hurting. It's everybody that depends on Broadway. Yeah, I am curious some of the questions, you know, the conversations you guys are having, because it's, you know, this comes in a week where we did talk to, you know, uh, someone who manages um, a family-owned hotel down in downtown New York and, you know, what they're doing. And I think, Jason, they said something like 20 or 30 percent capacity, you know, and how they're doing things differently. And it is a very different experience in terms of shoes being cleaned and everything sanitized. There is there is just no way to do Broadway physically or financially, right, on a smaller scale of not really making the goal always filling as many seats as possible. That's correct. The we are a heavy heavily unionized business mm. and we have the best theatrical employees in the world, but they're also the most expensive and uh, the costs of Broadway continue to skyrocket because the world expects us to deliver the best of everything. 
the best sets, the best digital technology, as well as the best actors. And it's uh, it's it's an expensive business to run. The uh, the history has shown that in the best years, one out of four shows recoups on its investment. And for the long run, it's one out of five shows recoup on their investment. So uh, a significantly reduced audience uh, just doesn't work. If if we uh, open and have audiences of 50% or less, Broadway won't work. So mm. we have to make sure that when we open, we have ticket sales to help keep the shows open because it would be a disaster to have the shows open and then have to close three weeks later. Right. So, Charlotte, I, I wonder, because I know you're talking to producers and playwrights and all the folks who are on the creative side as well, I mean, what does this do for shows that were, you know, maybe not quite ready to go but were teed up to open in, in the second half of the year or maybe some shows that, that were scheduled to open at the beginning of next year, does everything get pushed? How many things just don't happen? What's your sense of how this sort of ripples through what we see when hopefully we are able to return to Broadway early next year? Well, I mean, fortunately, uh, we have only had two shows that were to open right after we closed mm -hmm. uh, Broadway on March 12th and one long-running show uh decide not to come back and that was frozen and then there were the two that aren't going to be performing but that leaves about 35 shows that could be coming back when we reopen and what happens is if they all come back there won't be enough theaters for the shows that were coming in because many of the shows on broadway are what you call limited runs they right. say we're going to be running for 12 weeks or 16 weeks and if those shows do in fact come back, and we hope they do, then everything that was scheduled for January or the spring will be pushed back a bit. And we sure hope that all of those shows get to come back. Those people work four to yeah. six years, sometimes more to bring their show to Broadway. So we want them to have their day. I have to say, I was kind of looking forward to it. I think it was going to be a limited run. Sarah Jessica Parker and Matthew Broderick, right? Wow. They were just about to open, weren't they? They were, but they are scheduled to come back in the spring. Okay, that's good to hear. Local what, residents making yeah. good on their promise, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what happens, you know, you, I love you coming on because you do explain kind of the economics um, and, you know, of how Broadway works. What happens to all of those workers? You say it's heavily unionized. Do they, have they been getting payments of some sort or are they getting money from the government? Like, how does it work? What happens to those workers? Well, when we shuttered, uh, we paid the workers for two and a half weeks. Okay. And then uh, health care was covered for longer than that. And many of the unions are getting health care coverage still. And many are getting unemployment insurance. But there's no question, everyone on Broadway, producers, the people that work in the producer's office, the people that work in theaters, everyone is uh, is experiencing difficulty. I mean, most people think Broadway, wow, big business, big big corporations. Broadway is made up of hundreds of small little businesses that put everything they have to bring their show to Broadway. I mean, yes, you have Disney and a couple of other big shows that uh, 
big companies that bring their shows to Broadway, but most are small entrepreneurial businesses, and they're all suffering as well as the actors and stagehands and designers. It, there's nothing good about this shutdown. Yeah. And Charlotte, you know, one of the things we talked about the last time you were with us was, you know, obviously you have uh, a window into this through the the touring companies as well. I mean, this is a national uh, epidemic and we're seeing it really flare up uh, in a lot of different places. I know, I I believe if I remember you hail from Dallas, so you understand all different parts of the of the country. How is the touring business looking amid all of this? Is it completely shut down as well, or are you seeing any movement there? Broadway tours are in 242 cities around our country, and they're all shuttered. The uh, one slight uh, glimmer of hope is many of the other markets where the Broadway shows tour to were not as heavily hit by the virus. So there is some thought that some some of the cities can open up before the end of the year. And most of our cities are not as dependent on tourism as right. New York City is. They have subscribers, and subscribers are very loyal to their theater. I mean, I didn't miss a show at the Dallas Summer Musicals for as long as I could remember because that's where I learned to love Broadway, and that's that's the way people are in many of the markets across the country. So hopefully we will get some of those people back to work before the end of the year. Do you see it as it's not until we get a vaccine or at least treatment modalities that can treat people who ultimately get the virus to keep, you know, so that they they may get the virus, but they can take something that uh, mitigates the, the, the symptoms and the outcomes? Is that... Is that what will ultimately open up Broadway, Charlotte? Well, we do not believe uh, that we have to have the vaccine to open. It will be great to have it, Mm. uh, but the medical professionals that we're working with say that many other protocols that are uh, coming close to to being real uh, would allow us to come back. Certainly, the most critical thing for the cast and crew is the uh, instant testing because there is no way that these performers can, and stagehands and the people that work backstage, can come back and we not be assured every single day that they're healthy. Because if you've never been in backstage of a Broadway theater, these are historic buildings that are spectacular, but they're not the biggest backstage areas you've ever seen. So uh, we have to have the testing that, is reliable, and we're getting good indications that those will be available to us. Plus, there are protocols being developed all around the world that Mm. we're obviously watching and paying attention to. Theater is a global community, and Broadway uh, travels around the world, and the world travels to Broadway. So we're all sharing information, and our medical experts are telling us that uh, they have cautious optimism that uh, we can come back after the first of the year, not telling us exactly when, right. but after the first. And uh, and we're we're hoping for that to be the case. As we all know, we find out new things about this virus. Seems like every week, sometimes it's positive and sometimes it's not. So we're very dependent on the good news. 
That's president of the Broadway League, Charlotte St. Martin. And, you know, Jason, she often reminds us that it's not just about the folks up on stage or behind the curtain, but it's a whole industry, restaurants, right, and everything in New York City that supports the theater industry. So it really has a big impact on the city economy and really the national economy. Yeah, the national economy as well. I mean, don't forget, you know, there are touring shows Mm -hmm. that are, you know, coming to theaters near you usually, uh, and that whole business is largely shut down. We hope Broadway is back soon. Well, that wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Be sure to tune into Bloomberg Business Week Radio live Monday through Friday starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. And if you can't catch us live, find us on your podcast feed. Subscribe to Bloomberg Business Week wherever you get your podcasts. You can get the full conversations like the ones we had with Charlotte St. Martin, Joanne Berger-Sweeney. You can also hear the in-depth conversations we have on our daily show with some of our best experts like Craig Gordon, our Washington Bureau Chief, and Kate Crater, our food editor at Bloomberg Business Week. And check out our extra podcast. Jason, we caught up with chef and restaurateur Danielle Boulou, talked with us about offering up Danielle Boulou Kitchen. He, like so many in the restaurant industry, pivoting to bring back customers. And don't forget also, you can watch the show live on YouTube. Just search for Bloomberg Global News. We'll be back right here next week at the same time. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.